Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to conservation and stewardship of the natural world. I'm Dylan Banyasco. I'm a landscape architect, outdoorsman, and conservationist. I'm learning from exceptional people who are working to improve our relationship with land in one way or another. Subscribe on your preferred podcast app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Jaden Bales is a sportsman and western hunting tag expert from Wyoming. He's written for outdoor media websites such as Rockslide and Modern Huntsman, and has appeared regularly on podcasts like Eastman's Elevated and The Rich Outdoors. When he's not hunting or talking about hunting, he's advocating for wildlife as the communications director for Wyoming Wildlife Federation, an organization that provides leadership and conservation for Wyoming's wildlife and hunters and anglers through policy, education, advocacy, and habitat projects. We did a deep dive into Western hunting, from some of Jaden's personal stories to how he helps people find good opportunities through his new venture, Hunt West. A few days after this recording, actually, I hired Jaden for a consultation. He put a lot of effort into producing a custom package for me to help achieve some of my hunting goals and understand where and how I need to be applying for tags. Well worth it for anyone from new hunters trying to understand the system to experienced sportsmen looking for some new opportunities or places to hunt. One aspect of this podcast is that it gives me an avenue to connect with people that I admire and can learn something from. I found Jaden's early hunting stories to be really relatable to my own experiences so far, and he's been able to advance as an outdoorsman to the point where he's having consistent success and some amazing adventures, so it was nice to pick his brain a bit. And I hope you enjoy the conversation, even if you aren't into hunting. This is about growth and love for the outdoors. You can learn more at huntwest.net, and you can see what the awesome team at Wyoming Wildlife Federation is doing by visiting wyomingwildlife.org. Thanks. Here's Jaden. All right, I got Jaden Bales on the podcast, sportsman, writer, Western hunting tag expert, communications director for Wyoming Wildlife Federation, and newly owner of Hunt West. What's going on, Jaden? Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. I never put that title like sequence together, <laughs> but I suppose that works. Well, hey, thanks for doing this. For the listeners, there's a connection here. I had Jess Johnson, your partner, on, what, less than a year ago. Almost exactly a year ago. It was February 1st that you published that episode. I went back and looked today doing my research. Oh, wow. It has been a while. But I had a great conversation with Jess talking all about her work with Wyoming Wildlife Federation and some of her adventures. And uh, at the end, I said, hey, you know, do you know of anyone else I should talk to? And she was like, actually, my boyfriend. And I was kind of like, okay. And then <laughs> I found out I kind of came across you later on and, and some of the stuff you're doing with... Uh, helping people find opportunities to hunt in the West. And I was like, man, I really do need to talk to this guy. So uh, I appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks. Uh, she, while being a, an excellent partner and spouse, uh, she is really good at making recommendations. I don't know. Uh, hopefully I can live up to her hype here. But um, I, I appreciate you getting a hold of me. I know um, there's a lot of topics that we can talk about. And um, one of the things that I really appreciate is your diversity and how you approach topics and your thoughtfulness. And so that's why I was like all, all about it. Um, it's kind of interesting. Jess and I come from similar yet very different backgrounds as far as both agriculture and hunting is concerned. Um, okay. So it's, it's, uh, I think there's going to be some interesting topics we can cover today. I'm excited. Well, you've done a fair bit of this yourself, right? Podcasting and kind of writing. I, I came across some of your articles in like, rock slide and um uh rich outdoors like you've you've been around for a while huh doing this stuff back in 2017 um i graduated college and i was like looking at the landscape of what jobs were available and i took one as a digital uh, digital magazine kind of not an editor because we had a print magazine and i was just making it digital and, and and using facebook and instagram and stuff and I realized like if I'm not going to make, cause right out of college, I was making like 24 grand and I was like, all right, if I'm going to make like no money at all coming out of college, I might as well do it 
in something I enjoy. So, yeah. um, started shifting into the hunting world after that. Cause I was like, look, I understand that, um, when you follow your passion, oftentimes it doesn't lead to the biggest financial payouts, but I wasn't on a great path otherwise. So you might as well do what you love. Right. That's right. It was, it was pretty tough. I was like driving cats, uh, like a uh, caterpillar type bulldozer style machines, um, on the side <laughs> as well as doing some sales stuff. And, um, yeah, anyway, so that's how I ended up doing writing and stuff because I, I looked at it and I was like, okay, um, I could either drive a, a and help these people develop this property on the weekends, or I could start writing and doing stuff that I'm really passionate about. Um, and that's when I got in touch with the rich outdoors. Um, Cody rich has been a huge, uh, mentor and friend to me like these past yeah. seven years. Um, and things have just kind of grown since then. I love it. We're well, doing some cool stuff now that, um, I think people are, people like me are going to be excited to find out about you, you know, kind of helping folks navigate this, this landscape of, uh, tags in the West. But, um, so you were in, you were in Bend, Oregon real quick. Did you grow up in Oregon? Yeah, I grew up in Northeast Oregon. Um, I had a single mom for most of my childhood and our farm, what like her parents farm was mile down the road. So grandma and grandpa were our babysitters and therefore they got uh, a lot of free labor and then they started getting a lot of cheap labor and then they started getting a lot of standard labor as we got older. So I grew up, I like to say I grew up on a farm, um, but it was, it was my, my grandparents who had the farm and then mom was a single mom who worked in the ER and did a lot of hours and was, was really an awesome role model for us from a work professional perspective. Um, but yeah, we spent a lot of time riding four wheelers, moving irrigation, working it on swathers and, you know, doing the whole farm ranch kid thing. Nice. Yeah. I had a similar situation with having a family farm, but it wasn't, we didn't necessarily, we didn't live there, but, uh, a lot of work was done. Um, and did anyone in your family hunt? Oh yeah. I'd like to say like, gosh, this is kind of crass, but I was raised by, uh, cowboys and Indians. Um, <laughs> my dad's side of the family, I just had this conversation with my grandpa the other day. Uh, he was born on the Yaki Indian Reservation. They moved to Oregon when he was a kid. And um, his dad worked on ranches. Grandpa was a leather worker. He ended up going back to school and stuff. But he's very much so been tied into the ranching community. Same with my dad. He's been a big team roper his whole life. Dad's also been a big waterfowl hunter and, and done a lot of big game hunting. So that was a huge influence, right? That whole my father's side of the family. But then Grandpa Bill, who was the farmer, um, you know, he also took us out. So it was really, man, from from the earliest memories I have, um, the majority of them are, are revolving around hunting and angling or being outside in some way. I feel super lucky, like looking back on it now, thinking about that. But uh, yeah, I had it on both sides, and and I feel real fortunate about it. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I. One of the reasons I've been excited to talk to you is um, I, got, I found your work here online uh, on Hunt West website, and you talk pretty candidly about like failing a lot when you were first starting to hunt the West. And I guess you're talking about more your young adulthood and going out by yourself and hunting big game. But um, it's pretty relatable, <laughs> listening, you know, reading through these stories of like taking you years to kill an elk or all your failed pronghorn stocks. Uh, I'm kind of in that right now where I'm like, I'm putting in the time I'm, I'm doing my best, but I'm feeling like there's a lot more failure than, than success. And so anything, any sort of content that I could find that reaffirms the, uh, you know, the persistence and goes, Hey, you know, if you just change a few things, you can, you can start killing animals. Um, it's, it's been good for me to see that from you. So I appreciate you being honest about that stuff. Tell me about like, for example, the elk, you said it took you like five years to take down an elk. I mean, where, what were you doing Seven. wrong? Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. I think I'm on year three, so I, I got some time. So, and this is the, uh, I, I did some thinking about this recently because I was like, yeah, I had these great mentors of mine, grandparents on both sides. My mom wasn't, has never been into hunting, but she's gone. And then my dad, obviously he's been a hunting fool. And, um, I realized that there's kind of like two levels of mentorship though. One is more just like outdoors, um, knowing how, you know, your woodcraft and your navigation and like the standard kind of baseline skills that I think 
that most outdoors people go into the woods with, and maybe I'm wrong and they don't have those skills, but I, I feel like there's kind of a baseline here that I, I was given, um, as a kid. And then, um, one interesting thing changed that kind of, uh, was a catalyst for all this stuff. And that was, I could no longer draw the rifle deer tag where the farm was located anymore. It wasn't oh. a guaranteed draw every year. But there were over-the-counter archery tags, and there was over-the-counter archery tags for deer and elk. So I was like, "All right, well, it looks like I'm picking up a bow." Um, <laughs> How old were you? So this is, I was 18. Okay. Last year that I hunted with a rifle was I was I think 16 or 17, and then the following year I was like, "Dang, I can't draw." Okay. We'll pick up a bow. And what I realized then was like, okay, I have a pretty good foundation from these people, but like the old school approach was. Um, at least the, what I grew up around was reliant on a lot more like place-based wisdom, someplace you'd been forever, like that you'd hunted for just generations after generations. My, my grandpa in central Oregon, he still goes back to these same like elk camps and hunts them year after year after year. He's been doing it his whole life. You know, there's like this, this is, there's this weird like transition um, where all of a sudden I started like coming like into podcasts coming into YouTube and like realizing that there was, you could not just kind of rely on luck or just like what the woods give you every year. And you could put in the effort and time and, and go to school really to like understand what's making people have either a better experiences or more encounters or like just more success, however they define that. And so it went from like uh, letting the, letting the outdoors happen to you versus like taking taking yourself to another level with experience with with skills and like literally going to school on what it means to be a better hunter um yeah until i went to that like that new school approach of like what am i missing here that's going to set me up for success that that thing started looking a lot different it's so much to learn, like, you know, coming into this this Western hunting system for me has been pretty daunting to try to navigate a whole new geographical landscape, a whole new political landscape, new species, new behaviors, new plants and ecology, climate, you know, all the things that you have to kind of consider out in the mountains. All, what you want to be doing is focusing on animal animal behavior and tracking them down and figuring out what their patterns are. But before you can even get there, you've got to figure out access and legality. And, you know, there's just, I've said before, you you know, it practically takes a law degree to hunt out here. And it's, um, it's maybe a barrier to entry for some people, which is understandable. But I feel like if you just have enough grit, you're kind of like, and you're focused enough on making it happen, you can get through that stuff. And I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm starting to figure it out, but then there are setbacks for sure. I don't know. Actually, like the grit is crucial to keep you going. It's like what keeps you a field. It's what keeps you in the game. It's what keeps you mentally strong. But there's no, there is no replacement for time of field. Mm. You you learn so much from just spending time outdoors that that is something that I think as much as I, I talk about going to school and like being obsessed with like getting better, like you put that together with the time of field in order to like create a recipe that, um, that fits your style and like fits what you're trying to achieve. It's one of those things that like I, uh, second year of bow hunting, I was trying to, I was sitting out in this alfalfa field. It's uh, there's a river bottom, and we had access to this 120 acre alfalfa field. And then in the river bottom, there was another. The neighbors had an elk herd that was living in the river bottom and would sometimes feed into the alfalfa field. And I'd sit there right on the edge of that alfalfa field, bugling and cow calling, and just like I didn't know what was going on. Right, <laughs> elk don't do that. I was sitting upwind of these elk, right, like so, <laughs> or you know, like they were catching my scent. Yeah. And eventually I realized like I sat out there long enough and I was like, okay, something like isn't working here. But I just like that same fall of just putting in days after days after days, trying to get these alfalfa elk. Um, I stumbled into a black bear and got a black bear. Oh, there you go. And so it was kind of one of those things where 
Um, like, you know, especially when you're in that kind of a fluid situation, you've got multiple tags in your pocket and you're just spending a ton of time out there. Um, things happen that you don't always expect. And, um, you know, I think year after year, I keep running into these situations where things happen that you don't always expect or don't always, um, anticipate coming your way, but you just have to be ready to capitalize on those opportunities and like be flexible with, with what you got. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. You spend enough time out there. Something's going to happen. Usually for me, it was pigs, wild pigs would show up at the strangest times. And it's like, all right, something happened. You know, I've been sitting here waiting for, waiting for a buck for three days, but there's some pigs. I'll shoot them. And, um, and then you kind of slowly learn about that species and then you start targeting them. And I totally agree with you on just time out in the woods. What, what was, what were some of the things that you were doing just all wrong that you recognize now? So the first one was the wind thing. Yeah. That was like very obviously I was like, Oh, come on. They're like 600 yards away. They can't be, they can't smell you. <laughs> Never ever did they get any closer. And it was just like that. Um, man, a little later on, um, I've had a, I've had a, real tough time honing in like the water that I need for for my hunts. Oh yeah. The first backpack hunt I did, it was when I was living in central Oregon and a friend of mine, uh, we wanted to go into this area that he deer hunted before. And, uh, there was a big fire in the area at the time. And so we couldn't go in there. So we had to, you know, make a game time decision. We were literally were driving the day before the opener to go to the spot and it, the road was closed. Like, Dang it. So we go up to this other place and we pick out the spot on the map. It's a pond up there. And I'm like, well, I don't know how long it's going to get there. So I filled my backpack with a gallon of water, <laughs> my first backpack hunt. And, um, it was only like three miles. So it took us, well, it took us a little longer. There's a bunch of blowdown and Manzanita and stuff to get there. But regardless, it was like three miles and we were camping <laughs> at a pond and I had, <laughs> yeah, man. um, well, better that than the other way. Right. Well, I've gone too far the other direction since then, and um, I'm having to find a nice happy medium. Yeah. A couple years ago, I killed a buck with my bow, and a couple friends of mine were there. As we're like, like we saw where the buck bedded, we're crossing this drainage that has a thick, solid blue line that says this creek on it, you know, and we cross the creek in the bottom, and we look down and like, there's no water here. And we're like, ah, it's no big deal. We're not going to kill a deer. We go to the other side to shoot a buck, and then we're like, uh-oh. Like, we have a big pack out and zero water from, well, we really ran out of water about 1 p.m. and, and like, didn't get home till 10, 30, 11 that night. It was Oof. not, that was not fun. And that was edging on. I'd rather carry too much water and be, um, be overly hydrated than do the other version. That one got a little scary. It's one of those things, like, you just can't, um, you know, the School of Hard Knocks is going to be a really good teacher every time. And, and I don't think you ever stop learning at that school, um, at least not in hunting. Yeah. I feel like most of us start out like over-prepared, over, over-packed with gear, right? Like my first elk hunt a few years ago, I think I was carrying like 55 pounds and I just had stuff in there that I just never used. I didn't need, I, I was out there for five days and I, there were things that I never pulled out of that pack and shouldn't have even brought with me. And I saw. Uh, no, I never had a saw or a shovel. Um, <laughs> I did those two things for sure. <laughs> just, you know, too much. I don't even remember. Just too much stuff. And, and by the way, when you're first starting out, it's all cheap stuff too. So, you know, I still buy cheap stuff, but that stuff's heavy. And um, I, I think there's a learning curve there with like what the industry will tell you you need versus what you actually need. I've really come to terms with that. Like the first year or two, I felt like I was – always saving up for some new piece of gear. And then just through enough time in the woods, I've kind of realized the things that are really important and the things to spend money on like boots. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the, I think that was the first podcast I ever got on was with Cody rich. And we talked about, um, how to, uh, equip yourself on a college budget. Mm. This is, this is when I was making 24 grand a year and it was, it was actually really well received because I think you're right. Like the learning curve is super hard to know. Like, what, like, do I need to be shooting a, like the newest bow? Like, is that going to make a huge difference or, or should I have the best backpack I can buy or should I have the best binos or should I have the best Sitka gear? Like it's just as, um, 
it's really hard to know when you have so many messages coming at you, like where you should be putting your effort. They'll have you spend $10,000 before you step foot out of your truck. And you know, that's not realistic for most of us. It's like, maybe you need to invest $1,200 and make that go as far as you can to equip yourself. I don't know. I will say I just bought, or I didn't buy, I was, I was part of this uh, boot project, um, with lacrosse and I just got my dad sent a pair. It's the first like expensive pair of boots he's ever had. And this dude has hiked like more miles than I would care to count in just like crappy, like leather boots and (laughs) oftentimes with like blue jeans on. And so there is an element here of like, you know, when it comes back to this like grit mentality or this, like just, just can't your stick to itiveness. Like there's an element of, not being able to buy that. And I think that that is something that probably should have more emphasis on is like your stubbornness, your stick your grit, whatever you want to call it, that keeps you afield more often and keeps you going out there. Like that is what builds on the time. Um, and I don't think that can be underemphasized and, you know, like it's just, it's, it's crucial. Yeah. No, I I'm with you on that. Um, like I said, I'm kind of in this, like I've had a a couple of unsuccessful seasons now with some close calls. I'm really focused on bringing down an elk this year and I've made some good adjustments. I feel like I'm, I'm finding elk more consistently now, or like this season was the best. It gets better each year. I think the first hunt, I was just bushwhacking all day, just like stumbling through the woods and I bumped a couple of elk and that's the best I could hope for, but like kind of figuring out what doesn't work. Um, trial and error, but I guess for someone like me who's in that that grind and trying to break through to to pe- become one of the, you know, they say like ten percent of elk hunters kill ninety percent of the elk or something like that. What are some of the things that you start with baseline? Like if I hired you, which you are available for for con- consultations, and I want to do one of those with you separately, <laughs> where do you start with folks? I guess like me. I I think one of the big things that has been lost in all of the hubbub in social media and in YouTube, whatever, right. Is, is the fact that when you are fed a certain narrative, you don't get the chance to dig into the nuance of like what someone is predisposed to do, what they're like really interested in and like how they operate most efficiently. Um, one of the things I grew up around a lot of were people who are elk hunting out of tree stands. Hmm. Uh, You don't see people talk about this. Like it's not very sexy. Like you don't have to go to the gym to be good at tree stand up hunting. <laughs> um, you know, like these are the things that I think people don't consider is like, there's more than one way to skin this cat. It goes back to like, my dad, um, is a really good example because he's a pretty good contrast to kind of the, the new school way. And I just had the, had the fortune to go back and hunt with him a couple of years ago, um, on an elk hunt. And he is, is super quiet. He's super sneaky. He doesn't go very far, very fast. And the thing of it is, is like, he is going to see an animal before it sees him. Um, Hmm. This is a tangent to circle back to your question. Just being like the number one thing people forget to do is assess their personal skills. What are they good at? What do they like to do? Um, I've started really enjoying glassing more for elk because I'm a mule deer guy by passion. So it's one of the things that I'm like, man, that's a skill that I really enjoy. So I think when you're looking at, you got, you got to look yourself in the mirror and like, what do you like to do most often? If you're someone who loves to just grind, just cover miles, like you can lean into the approaches that, that are best for that. Uh, we have a friend named Matt and he, gosh, the dude can just hike the legs off an elk, man. <laughs> and inevitably you walk by critters when you're doing that. But at the end of the day, like you have to work with what you're given. He's impatient and he doesn't, necessarily like sitting on glass and knobs doesn't like necessarily sitting at wallows i fall more in his camp yeah man and so there's an element here like yes um yeah you just kind of have to address how you want to hunt and then go from there um when you walk your legs off though on day three of like uh of a 30 day elk season then you start looking for some some new approaches yeah and, and uh but you learn a lot when you cover that much ground too I'm coming off a repeat uh, knee injury, so I'm like, all right, no more 12-mile days, um, just hoping to find animals. Like, I need to I need to throttle back a little bit and, like, 
figure out where to go. Like take the trail in. Don't start bushwhacking a mile in. Like I'll I will now take a trail for five miles and then step off the trail into a spot that I've scouted. And like I spend a lot less time wandering around now, just out of necessity because I don't want to, you know, push it with this with this knee. So. Um, but yeah, before I just like, I want to make something happen. I want some agency in this hunt where I'm not having success. I'm like, if I just keep hiking, something's going to happen. And, uh, (laughs) that's usually not the case for me. No, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and time of field doesn't mean time of field walking. (laughs) We were talking about like the difference of success. I had the pleasure of going on an elk hunt with Ryan Lampers. Um, it was the same year that I killed my first, uh, elk with a bow and, um, Cody rich and I did a whole series about this. Cause he was really helping me hone in these skills that you're talking about, like stop, like, you know, I was, I was kind of sporadic. I had some opportunities I had muffed. I missed, I think two elk before I, uh, the year, uh, the years prior to actually getting one. And then that season I missed four, um, before I killed the bulls. Wow. There were a lot of issues that I had going on in, in my approach of elk hunting largely moving too fast, largely like just not settling in and, and and like being more methodical. I had the pleasure of going on an elk hunt with Ryan Lampers though. Um, if y'all don't know who he is, he's a stealthy hunter on Instagram. And I think that's what his YouTube channel is. Um, and, and Ryan, it was really interesting. Ryan worked his tail off to get into the back country. We hiked back in there and didn't really start hunting until we were four or five miles back in there. But then it was funny, like as soon as we hit the border of where we ground into elk in this particular area, um, all of a sudden the throttle came way back and he got super relaxed, super methodical, real patient. We, uh, we saw this, we sat down for lunch and it was right at that four and a half mile mark or something, sat down for lunch and we're sitting there eating our, our snacks and we look up the hill and there's an elk that walks across the hill. He's like, do you want to go call it in? (laughs) I'm like ripping and roaring like yeah like let's go get this bull and uh we get up there and ryan's like okay stay right here like call i'll kind of like give you some hand signals and uh the cool thing is you can go watch this on youtube but lampers is like yeah like go ahead and google and then he set this up and we called that bull into like 20 yards and lampers draws back it's epic footage of this like raghorn bull bugling and he lets down and he's like sweet did it and I, it was the first time I'd been around somebody who let down on an, on a critter like that. Did you know, did you think he was going to take the shot? Oh, I, I didn't know. You know, I wasn't, this was, this was, we started hiking at like 8am that morning. Like <laughs> I just had met the guy. So, um, and it was noon or one o'clock and that happened. And I was just like, wow. Okay. This, this guy's like, this is a different speed. So we go back down to our packs and hike up their ways. And we're just seeing these elk across like this, this big backcountry area. You can see like two, three miles in any direction. Cause it's an old burn. And we saw like hand pockets of elk and lampers would literally sit back and just like watch things unfold and wait for things to be perfect. Hmm. The next morning I woke up and I was like, I had all my, my tent was packed bags were in there. I was ready to rip and roar. I was eating my granola bar laying back on my backpack, like, all right, Lampers, let's go. And I'm like, man, it's kind of getting light, man. It's like shooting light. And he's still in his sleep in his tent with his buddy. And then he pokes his head out, like right after shooting light. Hey, do you want some Heather's choice? And I was like, <laughs> bro, aren't we supposed to be like grinding? Like we got to get going. Like this is, and, <laughs> right. uh, and he just was kind of like, nah, don't worry about it. Like we're in the elk. Like we don't need to hurry. And I was like, this is blowing my mind. Um, and we get out, he gets out of the tent and we just, sit there and we glass this hillside we find the bull like a bull that he wants to chase and then about 11 30 12 we start kind of moving in we sneak up on around and then and we call that elk in um there's more to this whole story that po- folks might just might as well just go watch the film so you get the whole thing but eventually kills an elk that we that i called in for him and it was super fun oh um, man it was a grueling pack out but the thing of it is was like this dude who is just um extremely proficient was one of the most methodical patient people I've ever been around in the mountains. Mm. And it was an eye opener. I love that. Yeah. I would have been like you, I would have been like, come on, we got out, you know, we got to work harder. Like Mm -hmm. maybe, I guess that comes with experience being able to slow down. 
so yeah, I guess, you know, I want people to, to find out about kind of what you're doing with Hunt West. I've been dancing around it, but I guess what is it and what made you want to get into it? I'd like to say trip, uh, Hunt West is a trip advisor for hunters. Oh, okay. We try to help you find places to go hunting and then have a better experience when you get there. What that means is I saw a whole bunch of people showing up on social media and just getting absolutely roasted when they posted like, hey, I don't need anybody's honey holes. I just need a starting point. And people don't have the tools to like have a starting point, especially when you're, um, you know, a, a, especially when you're like working class, have a family, you have like a, a full-time job. You can't just go screw off for a bunch of time and learn it through the school of hard knocks. It was like, okay, like let's sit down and actually look at the frameworks, look at the things that I've been able to pick up from Lampers, from Cody, from my dad and grandpas and like all those, you know, like in actually put, put it into some sort of formula that people can understand. Um, so that way they can go out and, and have a good hunt and not have to learn through the, as much of the school of hard knocks. You're never going to fully uh, escape the learning curve, but um, you can sure do some things to be prepared and have more confidence when you go out there. So that's where, that's, that's where hunt West came from. And it's why I kind of got it started. It also spurred a little bit because I realized uh from all the DMS I've gotten from my involvement with writing and podcasts, I've had an equal amount of DMS come from my work with the Wyoming wildlife federation. <laughs> Those two things collided in the same space as like, these are all common out common questions and common problems that folks are coming into. As in like, Hey, what's happening with the, this tag this year. And then the next person being like, Hey, where can I find good opportunities for tags in Wyoming? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. One of my favorites is like, "Hey, I want to go hunt antelope this year. What unit should I apply for?" And I'm like, oh, "Okay, so <laughs> do you have points?" <laughs> like, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is like, if you go onto some of these sites that um, have been around a long time, Rock Slide, Hunt Talk, any of the Facebook groups and stuff, there is a lack of patience for people who are just getting started. I don't know where that came from, but I think a lot of it is just like this general um, impatience with people who are learning. And I think that we got to get, we got to get over that. Um, so anyway, just having a lot of patience with folks with those specific questions, I think is really important. Um, because we were all there, man, we were all there at one point or another. Yeah. I think that exists everywhere. It's like you're showing up and trying to gain access to information that I've worked really hard to acquire. And I resent you for that kind of, kind of an attitude it's part of the reason that I just kind of try to teach myself a lot of stuff. And, and like I said, spend a lot of wasted days wandering around in the woods. <laughs> hey, no days wa are wasted when you're wandering around in the woods, but I get what That's you're saying. <laughs> so I will say like, it seems like it's, it's kind of a moving target with a lot of this in terms of the tag system. And uh, we're getting in the weeds here for some of my listeners are not hunters. And so, um, I think, you know, it's good to kind of acknowledge that this is a broader part of the North American model of wildlife conservation, that we have these tag systems out in the West where there's an abundance of public land, and, and this is how we manage wildlife in these areas. Um, so, but, it, but it's kind of constantly changing as, as science is changing, as human population is growing in some of these areas. As an expert on the subject, is it daunting to try to figure out all these different threads and, and all these different ballot initiatives and legislative actions that are changing things up for Western hunters. Yes, it is daunting. Yeah. One of the, one of the things is though, like I do really enjoy it and I've come to just over the years, I've come to know where to look. And I think that that's half the battle sometimes. Um, for instance, like Colorado had a uh, mission meeting a couple weeks ago in January they proposed a handful of new hunts in there and like our new opportunities for the 2023 season. But if you didn't know that that was happening and weren't paying attention, like, you know, you wouldn't have known that those opportunities exist. I had no idea. Exactly. <laughs> They're in the new regulations uh, booklet. I just got mailed by the way. Um, so actually, no, I just got the sheep and sheep moose goat one. Anyway. Um, it's daunting. Yeah. Cause things are always changing. And one of the biggest things that has changed over the years has been um, the the supply and demand equation. And I think taking another step back here, like for people who maybe aren't in the weeds too much is like, 
there's only a finite amount of these wildlife that we're chasing. Um, and then oftentimes you're, you're managing people more than you're managing the wildlife. Mm. If it was about managing the wildlife, um, I don't think that this would be quite so hard. Um, just because for instance, you probably wouldn't offer as many male opportunities because you don't need those populations to get taken out to manage. Whereas if you're managing for populations, you would just all of a sudden increase the amount of cow elk licenses, for instance, and you're seeing yeah. this happen across the West. There is an increasing number of elk hunting opportunities for cow elk in essentially every state that has elk right now. Outside of just a regular over-the-counter either sex tag? Yeah. Hmm. And that is a piece, and this is, like again, I think that is one of the things that illustrates what's going on here. It's it's more about the demand from people, right? And what people want to experience. Um, you see, like, Utah just totally overhauled their elk system because when it was created, there wasn't a lot of elk. And they figured, like, if we offer some limited opportunity to experience these hunts, um, it, it'll be really good it'll be really good experience for people who have the tag and like everyone should have a chance at some point in their life. The elk numbers have boomed. They haven't really adjusted their management strategy and people are dying of old age before they get the opportunity to go on these hunts because they have such limited opportunity. Uh So in 2023, they're instituting a whole new management plan to make way for more people to be on the landscape, chasing these elk in these different places. This is just another point to illustrate that, like, as you were saying, things are changing and it's daunting. It's not always in the negative, though. It just happens to be in the negative when the demand for the thing is is more than the resource can can hold. Yeah. You know, it's a really good time to be um, a black bear hunter right now. Uh, it's a really good time to be an elk hunter. It's a really good time to be a whitetail hunter out west. Um, and I think that when we get too focused on on, on the antler of the thing that we want to chase, like that's when we start missing what the whole purpose of this is as far as the North American model and how it relates to our hunting experiences. With all the various proposed changes and the disagreements around, around various hunting opportunities, for example, in your home state of Oregon and Washington, there's a political divide, obviously, between the coastal cities and, and the rest of the folks living there. And that often kind of results in very different opinions on how to manage wildlife. Do you have faith in the the North American model and the role of hunters that in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we're still going to have abundant opportunities? Look, I will say to a fault, I'm an optimist, right? Like <laughs> I inherently am going to, like this is just baked into my DNA. I look at this and say, we have an opportunity here to continue to like have this be part of the American experience and to be part of the way we interact with wildlife. The fact of the matter is like, there are a lot of, there are a lot of voices pushing to change that and to alter what that looks like. Um, Like you're pointing out in, in Oregon and Washington. um, They're just because of that cultural divide, there is inherent uh, miscommunication that occurs as to what it looks like and why like hunting occurs. Um, I had the pleasure of like going to a real liberal college. It was university of Oregon in Eugene. And, yeah. um, that, that bear that I referenced earlier that I shot, like, you know, opportunistically, I just tossed that sucker up on social media, just like everything else. And, um, quickly realized that like, Oh, people don't all have the same experience and the same background with these animals and these places that you do. And it just takes a little bit more effort to explain that. So all that's to say, you know, you're asking me, like, am I optimistic about these things, you know, 20, 30 years down the road? Yeah. As long as we do two things, one, continue to care about the wildlife and two, continue to care about how other people perceive the way we interact with them. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of the moral of the story. Oh, well put. Yeah, I'm I'm listening. Or, yeah, I'm listening to a book. I always say I'm reading a book and I'm, I'm generally listening, um, listening to a book about uh, mountain lions. It's called the Cougar Conundrum. And he talks about, he kind of wades through a lot of the information and disinformation about lions. And um, it's it's helping me kind of understand some of my, my own biases around big cats and, and big carnivores. And also like to 
to realize where the the, the parts of me that have be, that maybe have become ideological about defense of hunting or things like that where he's he lays it out in scientific terms saying hey look you know in certain situations management of these of these animals hunting is absolutely called for and and effective but like if we're being honest with ourselves there are some situations where it's actually more effective for a state agency to come in and and remove uh problematic lions and not necessarily open it up to a general season or, or something like that or hound hunting because of the way it affects lion behavior but he he says as as you said this is also a social science like mm-hmm. wildlife management it relates to to us and and where we see our role in kind of this landscape and, and with these critters so um it's complex and i think it's just like acknowledging some of that nuance and not sort of digging your heels in in defense of one thing all the time yeah it's it goes back i had this conversation with uh some really sharp folks some people in the hunting industry who have been doing it a long time and you know we were talking about changing the word trophy language um this is a whole this is a thesis i think jess mentioned on your podcast that she's run with um and i really support it it's this idea that like we call in Wyoming, we call bears, wolves, and lions trophy game animals. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, really like in today's day and age, we should consider changing that. And I had a conversation about this with some guys that were like, look, like trophy, they're like, trophy isn't inherently bad, especially when you know what trophy hunting is. Trophy hunting is being selective and choosing older animals, the ones who have lived their their lives and been able to reproduce. And, yet, and I'm like, yeah, but you look at the statistics of the Americans um, who know about trophy hunting and it was something like 84% believe that hunting for meat is a good thing, but only 29% believe that trophy hunting is a good thing. Yeah. Wow. You're, and it's not that you're trying to change the people's minds who are, who are anti anti hunting or like that are on the far other end of the spectrum of you. It's like, there's a huge chunk of people here. I'm not going to try to do the math, but it's near 50% of the population that, doesn't totally buy into this trophy hunting mentality that could totally buy into the selective hunting and like, but they're just hung up on a word. And so whether you want to be right or you want to be effective are the like questions that I like to ask. And I like to say like, what are we looking at for 20, 30, 40 years down the road? If we can make decisions looking at that, like, man, that's really important. And I think that that's where we have a lot of culture clash right now. Um, people who have been in hunting and around the hunting culture in a certain way, like my grandpa and my dad, um, don't see the kind of long-term picture of what we do and what we say and how we act today are going to impact what the landscape looks like so far down the road. Yeah. I, you know, I generally shy away from arguments like, like semantics arguments. I think, Mm -hmm when we're bending over backwards to try to, um, to try to alter language to appease people who, you know, it's like, this is sort of a never ending cycle, but yeah, in that case, I, I, you know, you have a point in terms of like most people who think of trophy hunting, think of some rich guy going to Africa and shooting an elephant and they, they don't see any sense in it. They don't see any value in it. And they're always going to have a problem with that. So I see where you're coming from, but I also think like, to some degree, um, it's also okay to, to defend your, your traditions, you know, sportsman's traditions in the U.S. and not not give too much ground. I don't know. I'm kind of stepping back on what I just said. <laughs> no, I think it's important because, and these are the conversations I think hunters need to have, is like, and that people shy away from. They just try to be like, oh, it's, um, let's just, as an example, oh, it's cancel culture to try to change a word. That's certainly been the case in a lot of places right now. And like yeah. you said, it's like not always a, a productive conversation here, but when it's coming from the group and this is where, you know, not all hunters are on board all the time. Like we should acknowledge that. But, yeah. but what you end up with is, is a better conversation about how we talk to people who aren't within that community or aren't within that uh, ecosystem, the choir. Right. Um, and that's really the goal, right? Like that's, that's the end. That's the end goal is like, we are looking at, a common goal and that is being like how do we arrive at a sustainable friggin' robust positive experience around hunting 
with the vast majority of the American public um, um, in the long term. And so I think you look back again, like whenever you have these conversations, you can split them 10 ways till Sunday. And I think it's built for a more robust, it builds for a more robust like community to have those conversations. I agree. I, I think there is a lot of, it does seem to me, the stuff that I see that, that I get fed through my algorithms and stuff, there does seem to be a lot of consensus. Um, you said hunters are not a monolith, but I, and, and I, I'm sure they're not, but I also feel like at least the, maybe it's kind of back to the new age style of hunting that you talked about earlier. Like there seems to be a consensus around how we should be behaving. Um, what styles of hunting are cool and uncool and like what the role is of, of hunting. Like, I think there is sort of a, group out there that is trying to push for for hunting to be a certain way and that's why I really appreciate hearing from from different folks especially on the east coast and people who've been hunting in different ways for a long time like one of my favorite personalities is uh, Clay Newcomb and and folks who are in the hunting world will be familiar with him he kind of sheds light on different traditions different people that in the southeast that have been doing this for a long time and kind of they have their own they have their own style going on down there with raccoon and bear hunting and, and stuff that might not necessarily be like mainstream popular but um it's good to see i agree man it goes back to i was telling you about this old school hunting and people still do this stuff this is i think this is part of what we're missing there's like a there's a there's a chasm here of the new school popular way that we're being fed on our <laughs> on our instagram insta google tweet face <laughs> it is it is not the full picture and i grew up um the way that we hunted is we would put the old guys on one side of a thicket and the young guys would push the thicket we did this for elk and we did this for deer oh an old deer drive we did drives and keep in mind i never killed an elk until i was like well into my 20s and like it wasn't the most effective way for us to do this. <laughs> but it is how we got our first deer and it was community it was all like the freaking neighbors came over my uncle, my cousin, my grandpa, my brother, me, like we were all there at this one place and like, and did the thing. And that is that you, I've never seen that on Instagram. Yeah. Never. I never got to participate in something like that, but I love the idea of trying out some of that. I, I was reading that those old school deer drives and deer camps kind of came out of like folks coming home from the great wars and, and these soldiers had a certain like tactical way of thinking in the woods where they're like, all right, set up, we're going to flank them and pincer movement and all that shit. And that's kind of a, a cool relic of, uh, of North American hunting that, I don't know. It sounds like chaos and it sounds a little dangerous, but I'd like to do one. Well, and here's the thing is like the first two deer I shot were unsupported and the deer were on the move. <laughs> like, unsupported meaning your rifle. Yeah. As in like the rifle is shouldered. I'm not posting up on anything. And, um, this isn't, this isn't to remark about my marksmanship. This is just, that is the way that people had trained and like the, the culture was like, this is just what you expect. Make sure your gun is on at a hundred yards and then you're going to shoot this deer as it's running through this <laughs> drive. Um, I know a lot of people who do whitetail stuff back in the Midwest will probably relate to this because I've heard similar stories. Um, but uh, there's some interesting stuff. You know, I have a book somewhere around here. Um, from a gentleman from Northern Utah. Gosh, I've got to remember this. Uh, regardless, he talks about, um, he was one of the first books about kind of hunting trophy mule deer. And he talks about doing these same things, but using other hunters to, to <laughs> pressure deer to come towards you. And he would like, he would find a group of hunters and then try to like outflank <laughs> these hunters and get in front of them so that they could put, and he had multiple deer stories in this book that um, talked about that. Um, I'm going to find that name at some, po uh, bef some point before the end of this podcast, it's going to come to me and I'm going to blurt it out. So, um, I've heard Remy Warren talk about something similar where he's like, if there's 10 trucks at the trailhead, a lot of people turn around, but he's like, no, I'll just use those people to move deer around and <laughs> I'll have more success. Yeah, man. And, um, this, the reason why we got onto this was based on this like culture difference, right? Like that certainly is not, um, <laughs> that is not popular on on the social on the networks that we all follow commonly um and again like tree stand hunting elk not common and then 
this is kind of where I'm trying to get back to this point that like, I don't think that we're all a, a monolith in how we think, act and like display ourselves in, in the woods and having these conversations, especially on like a one-to-one basis, not just on a keyboard is where you make up the most ground is like, you learn a lot from people and you're able to like understand where they're coming from yeah. before you just go off and be like, yeah, that damn road hunter. You're like, Oh, that, you know, like this person has a disability or whatever, you know, like, there's just more. I think there's always more to the story than um, than that first meets the eye. Generally, and there's a bunch of knuckleheads in there mixed in there as well, and that's just part of it. Stalking trophy mule deer by Walt Prothero. Oh, cool. He ended up getting caught for poaching, so take that with a grain of salt. Um, but uh, but regardless, you know, there's some really good gems to learn from this book. Stalking trophy mule deer. Um, nice. it, it's really interesting. It was written in the early nineties and it gives you a pretty interesting look into how things were then. <laughs> like you think about it, this guy was the, this guy's the Remy war and the freaking the Steve Renella of this era, because he wrote this book and you know, like it's that class. It just was a, it was just a different time and a different medium. I dig it. I'm going to look that up. Um, speaking of kind of more person to person conversations and, and, learning about the way people hunt you hosted through hunt west a uh spring bear hunting webinar recently that i got, had the pleasure of uh calling into and uh your buddy joe condalis condilis yeah condilis um from the american bear association kind of put on a clinic there of uh, where to find and how to hunt how to how to age and sex bears through binoculars um just sort of a to z how to hunt spring bears it was great man are you going to do more stuff like that um, so what I've ended up doing with the Hunt West network is basically trying to give out more specific information and more like concrete examples than what you just see on a day-to-day basis, what people cover in a public podcast or YouTube or whatever. And you'll notice like I recorded that uh, that workshop and I only made it available to those who attended because um, Joe uses real images. He uses real Google earth, like screen grabs and stuff. And he's using real places to try try to illustrate a point um, that people want to learn. And unfortunately in today's day and age, like it just, if a gazillion people end up like where a spot is, then it ruins that spot. Uh Um, So what you'll see more of from me is more of these kind of limited opportunities uh, to be on webinars, because what I do is I go down into like the nitty gritty of an exact hunt or the exact situation, kind of like Joe did. And, um, I, I, you know, break things down in like a, in a very granular level that I think is being missed by the, the public information that's out there. Um, and so just inherently it's a, there's some tension of the, the wanting to help them, the amount of people, the maximum amount of people as possible, and also not wanting to disrespect these spots, these places and the wildlife that are there. So, um, it's a fine line I'm running, but uh i am doing more educational stuff like that they just happen to be limited um so folks have to kind of sign up and sign up early to get in there nice i think there's a demand for it in the age of just i don't know overabundance of drivel online like looking for deep knowledge from people who have who have earned it the right way the hard way um it's so valuable like you know for for me i'm kind of be- newly become interested in hunting bears in the last couple of years. And so to sit down and get an hour of like, here's exactly what I do and how I do it from someone who's had success, it's, it's invaluable. Yeah. And the other thing is like, um, it's one of the things that you're running into. And I think this is real common is sometimes we have mentors who may not be the best mentors. Sometimes we, which was in some ways, it was my case. Um, uh, and in other instances we go up without them and you're trying to make a go of it on your own. So I trying to hopefully bridge this gap for people um, so that they have someone that they can go to, to be a resource and to at least steer them in the right direction. Um, I'm not going to hold your hand, but at the same time, like there's just a, uh, like we were talking about earlier, people are keeping a lot of things close to their chest right now. It's almost like a, it's like everyone's in defensive mode um, when it comes to, to hunting and, I don't know that that's very, I don't know that's very helpful. Yeah, I learned that by being way too, like, I, I didn't really know about that. And so when I first came out here, 
if I met someone that was like, showed me a picture of a bull elk, I'd be like, oh, nice, man. Where'd you get that? And they're like, west, north, I don't know, over there. And you're like, oh, <laughs> people don't want to talk about it, which is fine. I understand. They want to go back next year and they don't want you to be there. Yeah. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head, man. <laughs> and we have this, I mean, really good friends of mine um, are in this local area have asked, you know, those kinds of questions. In some cases, I'm happy to tell them because it's like, look, it's, I'll give you the spot. How you hunt it is, is makes a bigger difference in a lot of ways. Um, granted, yeah, you don't want to see people there, but the two, my brother and I doubled on bucks this year. And, uh, as we're standing over our two bucks, like taking photos and stuff, um, a razor with three people in it drives by a dude on the skyline walks by and glasses us up. And then a dad or a, a kid, his dad and his dad, you know, father, son, grandpa walk by within 50 yards. And it was like, well, <laughs> this spot was no secret. Yeah. But the way that Tyler and I hunted it was the differentiator. And um, I think that if we can get people in the mindset that it's not about the spot, but it is more about the approach, we've got a we've got a uh, gap to bridge there between it not being the spot and it being about the approach to it. And unfortunately, there's still because we haven't bridged that gap across um, all mediums and all people. Um, that's where you know you can't just put all this information out to the public because then people will overload the spot. Yeah. So if someone books a consultation with you, are you sitting down and, and looking at maps and going like, Hey, here's a spot I would try if I were you, or are you just kind of looking at the broad 10,000 foot angle of like, you know, here's how you should be planning your upcoming seasons, I guess, you know, how do you, how do you do that with clients? The answer is Yes. <laughs> I just had a guy who got a hold of me who was like, Hey, I've been buying points in these six states. Like I don't, he's like, I have, <laughs> he gave me some really good parameters. He was like, I'm a dad. I have September and December to go hunting with these six states. Can you line me up with hunts, uh, two hunts a year for the next five years? Was that me? <laughs> <laughs> this guy, you know, he gave me some really good parameters and I was like, awesome. Well, let's dive in. Him and I sat down and, and I built a plan with him based on what he likes to do. It was muzzleloaders and rifles only, no archery equipment. And um, and we, we built a plan out for him because, look, it is really hard to map that out. And it's really one-on-one -on -one with him. Um, that's one end of the spectrum. The other end is um, this, this husband and wife combo are coming out to Wyoming. And um, they want to know, like, an approach to this mountain range of elk hunting. Cool that is going to lead them to be an elk consistently. So I took a look and the places I'm sending them are not places I've been before. And, um, I'm like, Hey, hunt this high country first, then hunt this low country. And if they're not there, then I want you to hunt around some safety boundaries. And by safety boundaries, I mean, um, private land or, or national monument or something where the elk can go and not be harassed by hunters. Um, so I use that framework to give people, some learning that they can take away from just looking at maps and not just being given spots. Yeah. And, and I'm using their map and their, their current situation as a mechanism to teach them that. So folks can contact you through your website and pay you a hundred bucks or so and, and get a one-on-one -on -one consultation. Yep. Yep. I'll help you figure out your tag situation um, for that. And then, you know, I'm not, here's the thing is it's like, I put so much, time and energy into each individual's custom plan that I'm not going to be very cheap. I will point you in all of the resources that have allowed me to get to this point though, that were for free. So if someone can't afford any of these services I'm offering, like just reach out to me and I'll point you in the direction of some really good free resources. Um, it's the long way around. Um, it might take you seven years to get your elk, but I doubt it if you, if you are dedicated and you dive into these resources because just the amount of stuff that's out there right now and available and someone who's really interested in making it go can make it go. No, you've already, I mean, you've already put up a lot of good stuff online that people can peruse uh, on your website and your Instagram. So yeah, I dig it. I like what you're doing, man. I'm, I'm going to be a client and um, definitely think that there's a, a demand for it. So good on you. I'm glad you started doing that. Um, in terms of, well, I yeah. just want to say thank you first and foremost, 
Secondly, it's like every single individual who has reached out to me and like, if I can help them in any way, that's, that's the end goal, right? It's, I'm not out here trying to like make, make a exquisite living off of this. I work for a nonprofit for a reason. Um, so <laughs> I, I just appreciate you, um, you know, saying that and also just, um, just having me on here to kind of share some thoughts about all this has been really enjoyable. Nice. Yeah. We went deep on hunting. So I know we did kind of a deep dive here, but, uh, it's what I wanted to talk about. So, um, <laughs> uh, I'm glad that you, uh, came on, I guess, uh, to wrap up here, what's, what's on your horizon for the next year? What, like, how's your, uh, your own tag application strategy working out? I've, uh, reached a point in my personal, like tag strategy, my tag cycle that, um, I have more opportunities afforded to me each year than I can go on. Um, it's, it's taken, well, it really only took me about two or three years to get to this point, but, um, it's been a, it's a situation you end up having to manage. I, I apply in four or five different States every year. And, um, this year is my Utah rotation. So I'm going to plan on a, on a deer hunt down in Utah. Importantly, I'm excited to like learn Utah and to like understand some of the landscape that's down there. Um, they've received a whole bunch of snow and rain this year. And the habitat and the landscape is going to be lush. It's going to be healthy. The critters on the landscape should also follow suit. Um, and it's something I'm really excited about getting into. Um, but that's kind of jumping the gun because in an untagged application related uh, adventures, I've got one to Scotland with Jess and no way. one to Hawaii with um, some really, really good friends of mine. And it's a family trip. My brother and his wife, um, myself and Jess and my mom, um, are all going there to, to visit family friends. So, um, the one thing that I love about hunting and it's whether you're looking at your home state or you're looking at Westwide or you're looking at international is that it allows you a vehicle to go experience different places and learn them below the surface level. You're not just reading the kiosk on these places. You're getting to like blood, sweat, and tears in these places. Right. Um, and you build great memories there and, um, it's, it's just, like I said, it's a vehicle that I've taken to experiencing different parts of the world. Um, and so I'm really excited for that this year. What species are you targeting in those two places? So Jess is setting me up for a stag hunt for my birthday and that's wow. the 19th. Um, she's a keeper that I know there's some, yeah, you can say that again. There are some, uh, other opportunities there, row and, and seek a deer, I think, um, maybe potentials. And then um, when we go to Hawaii, my, my friend Kane, he uh, he and his family have been, uh, been like a second family to me. Um, and they have a fishing boat. So we go out and do some deep sea fishing, usually catch some Ono, some Mahi Mahi. Uh, we've caught some Marlin in the past, and it's fun. Um, might dabble in a little bit of feral goat hunting and stuff like that, but uh, we haven't fully fleshed out those plans. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I've been seeing a lot of cool stuff out of out of hawaii goats pigs axis deer there seems to be a lot of opportunities so that'll be awesome i think it's one of those places that gets overlooked by the ocean but gosh there's a lot of land up there especially on the big island where they are so um i'm excited to learn a little bit more about that stuff it's new that's awesome yeah i got to hear about jess's uh doll sheep hunt in the northwest territories if folks haven't heard that episode uh she kind of had a once in a lifetime Hopefully not. Hopefully she'll get to go again, but uh, pretty amazing experience up there. So um, I don't know. Is that something you're, you're, you know, shooting for in the future with all your points and your applications? Are you thinking of some dream like sheep hunts and stuff? You can't have a dream hunt if you're not putting your name in the hat. So <laughs> it's always an option. Um, but the mathematics aren't working in my favor right now. So right. <laughs> I have, you know, it's one of those things where I, truly believe that like if you set your sights on a thing a goal that you want to achieve then you should figure out the ways to make it happen and not rely on chance um and like one of those things that i see that's probably within grasp it for me is um step one is uh like a mountain goat hunt in alaska um, wow you know it's like that's that's something on the horizon that i see is pretty obtainable Jess and I were just talking about bison hunting in New Mexico or in Mex in old Mexico. Yeah. Um, and those kinds of things are like experiences that you can go have that, um, are expensive. I'm not going to try to tell you they're not, 
But when you stack that up next to a cruise or like a seven day trip to Vail, Colorado for skiing, like there are ways you can make these things happen. There are ways you can justify them to is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'll never regret spending money on something like that. So all good. Well, Jaden, this has been great. I really appreciate you coming on. And um, like I said, I'll be following up with you and, and looking forward to seeing more of what you're doing. Um, where can people find you? And, um, and I know you're not just doing Hunt West, so uh, plug whatever you like. I know you're doing, you're writing for all sorts of different uh, media and, and all sorts of things. So tell the people. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you can find me just at Jaden Bales. Uh, there's not very many others, if any at all, that are on social media. So it's, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, my Hunt West accounts are at Hunts West. It's plural because that's just what was available. Um, HuntWest.net if you want more information on that. But my nine to five is with the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. Um, I run our communications there. And one of the things that really is important to me, we talk about hunting a lot. And hunting is like, a, again, it's like one part of this bigger picture of how we interact with our ecosystems. And I really am, I feel strongly about giving back to it. If you're, you know, it's, it's one of those things like we live in a, a, a highly taking society. So, um, if you're feeling like you want to give back, especially to Wyoming's wildlife and wild places, it would mean a lot to me if you check that out too. Um, and that's at Wyoming wildlife. Excellent organization. Yeah. And, and folks can, the, one of the reasons I, I didn't ask you too much about that is because we did cover it with, uh, Jess. So, um, yeah, awesome. Awesome. Big fan of Wyoming wildlife federation. Um, cool. Thanks Jaden. I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you, Dylan. I appreciate it too. All right. Bye.